Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Wannabe, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I'm Amriel Morgan founder of Content is Queen, a podcast production company and community that connects brands with the next generation of audio talent. If you're anything like me, you're always on the lookout for fresh inspiration and new perspectives. That's why I'm thrilled to let you know that today we're featuring a special episode of Jimmy Famurewa's new podcast, Where's Home Really, on our feed. In this episode, Jimmy sits down with the hilarious and talented comedian and entertainer Stephen K. Amos to explore his personal journey and the questions of where he truly calls home. I'm always eager to hear from successful people who've been there and done that. And Stephen's insights are sure to be both entertaining and thought-provoking. Now, Jimmy's podcast may not have the same focus as ours, but I truly believe that hearing from people like Stephen, who have navigated the ups and downs of the entertainment industry, can be incredibly motivating and inspiring. And as women of colour, we know that representation matters. It's important to hear from a diverse range of voices, and I'm excited to support Jimmy's efforts to amplify those voices. So... Whether you're a longtime fan of Stephen K. Amos or just looking for some fresh inspiration on your creative journey, be sure to check out this episode of Where's Home Really? You won't regret it. Welcome to Where's Home Really? With me, Jimmy Famarewa, a podcast that digs deep into the culture and heritage of some amazing people and aims to discover what home really means to them. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell me four key elements that help define for them that unique sense of home. And by the end of each episode, I think you'll really know where they're from and where they consider home to be. Those four elements are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. So for me, it would probably be a giant bowl of uh, cereal, like I'm talking like a fruit bowl-sized one, because it really reminds me of just the chaos of my house in the summer holidays, lots of cousins everywhere, just real mob rule and people just kind of living off these huge, unfeasibly massive bowls of cereal. But that's enough about me for now. Let's hear from my very special guest today. So I really thought about what I was going to do, which I want to play with people's perceptions. So my first thing was I used to come out with a broad Nigerian accent. <laughs> yeah. But the jokes, as far as I'm concerned, was not the accent. The jokes were the things I said. For example, I pointed at a man in the front row. Look at you openly, openly wearing glasses. <laughs> eh? You're a sinner. Have you found Jesus? The Lord gave you vision at a limited rate. You defy him by wanting to see more. And then the audience would lap it up and then I'd stop it and then they'd go, oh, so I'd fooled them. Today's guest is a stand-up comedian, a writer, an actor and TV personality. 
born in London into a big family whose parents came over to the UK from Lagos in Nigeria in the 1960s. So as a second-generation Nigerian born here in London, Stephen K. Amos is very much what this podcast is all about. Stephen, hello. Oh, Jimmy, thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be talking with you. We'll have quite a few things in common. <laughs> I, I think. think so too. I think it's always that that weird thing. You, you never want to be presumptuous, do you? You never want to presume and be like, we're the same. I know exactly your story. And I think we should get into the difficulties of doing that. I think you're absolutely right. We shouldn't make assumptions about people because at the end of the day, we all have a story to tell and we all have a journey. If you're a child born of immigrants into this country, that's the starting ground. And then it just shoots off from there. I always kick off by asking people what the show title means to them, what that question, what their initial thoughts are. The notion of being asked, where's home really? And those ideas of home, what are the first things it brings to mind? Do you know what? That's a really good question, Jimmy. And I really think it depends on who's asking the question because one can easily be on the back foot and think, why are you asking me that? Are you trying to find out whether I belong here, there? Are you trying to ascertain my identity, who I perceive I am in your eyes? Or are you asking in a more gentle way, which is the way I received it from you, Jimmy? I think about comfort. I think about safety. I think about family. I think about joy. I think about uh, laughter, tragedy. You know, I think of all those things that encompass your formative years. Those are the kind of things I think about. But I'll be honest, if somebody asked me, you know, randomly in the street, I'd be like, what? <laughs> trying to say, excuse me, mind your own business. It's a very good point and an important distinction. But I do also think that it kind of works the other way. And from my experience of, say, going back to Lagos, going back to Nigeria, there is this need from, like, other Black people to get to the bottom of, like, why you spoke like that, like, who you were. And that goes back to this notion of home and it being this thing that we carry with us and that is built up from all our experiences, be they cultural physical, whatever you want to call it. See, I think you've, you've absolutely, again, hit the nail on the head because in my formative years, as I was saying, you know, home is about, you know, the nurture I received growing up in Southwest London. But then in my mind, because of my parents, I had this other notion of home. And the first time I ever went to Nigeria, I think I was 13. And the first thing that struck me was, wow, there's a sea of faces who just look like me. And I met my dad's brother for the first time, who looks like he could be a twin of my dad's. And it was just like, wow. But the moment I opened my mouth, the people around me were going, where are you from? <laughs> so I'm like, wow, am I home? Yeah, what's what's yeah, going on? Yeah, uh, where yeah, is home? That's true. There's, there's familiarity and there's affinity and there's that sense of, oh, my God, like not being a minority. But then, of course, you give yourself away and there isn't this kind of embrace of, oh, you're one of us. And that is richness and that's interest, isn't it? The degree to which you belong to a bigger culture and a bigger heritage, but you can also be your own individual person. And if we alight on the thought of people, I want to start off with the person that you feel most evokes this sense of home. Is it a member of your family? You come from a very big family, right? I know there's a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I think my parents 
They should have gone out more. That's what they should have done instead of just having fun. I'm really intrigued because I feel like there's there's any number of candidates for that person for you within your family or outside of it. Who is the person that represents that? The people that really solidified home for me are musicians and musicians from my era of growing up in the early, late 70s in London. The music that was in played in our house, I never heard anywhere else. The music by pioneers, African musicians, King Sonny Ade, Ebenezer Obey, <laughs> yes. and the legend that was Fela Kuti. And it was joyous. And that was the time I saw my parents at their happiest. You know, in our house, we used to have one of those um, 70s radiograms that was quite long, and they had a record player on top. And to the side, they had a... My, I've got, got one in my house. <laughs> from the, yeah, the one that my parents had, I oh, kept fantastic. it in my house. It's a blau punked of all things, right? And it all works. Got radio to the side. You pull out the uh, record player that takes vinyls, obviously. And on the bottom, it's got this really kitsch, hideous drinks cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> and all I can remember from growing up since the year dot is my parents literally just jamming and winding to these these musicians. It was called high life music, juju music, and it was so rich, you know, because we heard it so often, I could sing along to it. And then I began to understand it was what they were singing about. And my parents would describe what was going on in the song. And then you'd understand my parents would speak to each other in Yoruba. This is before I went to any form of school. So that's the kind of culture and the life and the buzz that was in the house at the time. The weirdest thing was I did a function at a bigger venue in the West End and it was celebrating Nigeria Independence Day. And then I said to the DJ, oh, what would be really good is if you play this track by Ebenezer Obey, right? Which I love and I'll come and I'll sing to it. The crowd will go mad, right? And so I come out, you know, my big self, music comes on and I'm giving it all that. And the crowd of young, upwardly mobile, third generation Nigerian kids look at me going, old man, what are you doing? That is so old. Take what you very much a take a seat uncle moment. Uh, like, no, no more palm oh wine God. for Uncle Stephen. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I really thought I'd rock the joint, but no. <laughs> I'd have been no, with no, you. No. I'd have totally been with you. We're getting into something that, that interests me about you because I always think what I always loved and responded to your comedy was that you would give people a window into that home space that a lot of not just people of Nigerian or West African heritage, but I'm sure a lot of like people of immigrant heritage recognised and it was true and it was funny you were on the path to do the good thing of studying law and the sort of cliched, stereotypical, proper job of the uh, child of immigrants and something changed. Like, what was the moment? Do you know, that, that's a really good question because it's only late on in life that I began to ask myself what that moment was. And originally, when I was going to pursue a career in law, it was all about, you know, getting to work for the Citizens Advice Bureau and being a good member of society and helping people in times of need and trauma and tribulations. But as I went on, I thought, you know what? You know what I actually want? I want respect. And what better way to get respect than by standing in front of a room full of strangers, talking, them laughing and applauding. 
where did that urge for respect come from? Did that come from things you faced growing up? Possibly things that my parents faced, because my parents were really good in terms of not sharing with us what they went through. If you live in another land, and they come from a generation where they used to say things like, oh, when we were under British rule, it was much better in those days. <laughs> right, yeah, That's what yeah, they used yeah, to say. Yeah. But when they arrived here to the, in quotes, motherland, completely different story. And what an upheaval that must have been for these, they were young, they were young people when they arrived here. And to be literally slapped in the face must have been traumatic, but they never showed that to us. My dad worked three jobs sometimes, four jobs. I don't remember a time where they signed on or they were unemployed. Dad was a cleaner once, a bus driver once, uh, all sort just to put food on the table for all his children. We had our own house. And the only one thing they did that really irked me, I I went to about three different primary schools because they bought houses that were run down, did them up and sold them. So they were quite savvy back then, you know. So we moved quite a bit. You know, they thought of themselves as high-flying property Mm. developers. We thought we were in the witness protection (laughs) program because this this is like, we're moving too often. What's going on? And so, you, you know, that song, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. Where is my home? I don't know. We had an amazing house in Ballum, one of those houses that's four stories and a basement. And I remember they were doing up slowly, slowly. And when we finished the basement, my parents said to us, oh, now the basement's done. This is for you kids. You can have here and live here. Within three months, that house was sold. (laughs) So I think if we return to the idea of home, then that is something that, again, I think a lot of people will relate to. When, When home is literally a forever shifting thing, your notions of it and your sense of it is going to be scrambled, isn't it? I remember moving house and I vividly remember like that feeling of like, why have we moved here and kind of not being part of the decisions that are being made. And I think there was this real pragmatism that was really evident in that generation of of Nigerian immigrants to this country that my, you know, my parents and my mum definitely exhibited where it's like, you'll be fine. We'll go here. We've got this plan. You'll be fine. And you're kind of being dragged along and you're sort of really attached to to these to these various things. And so that must have made it really difficult. And that must shape you in all sorts of interesting ways and continue to to have an impact. It, it did as well, particularly that thing about when you have to move to schools and then you have to do that thing of re-explaining who you are to new friends you're the new kid on the block and you've just left the house where you think everyone everything is settled and you've got this amazing i shared a room with my older brother and it was the biggest room in the house and he had his side i had my side we just got settled in it was brilliant then we moved and it's like we downsized what are you doing I think uh, it's only later on, we're building a house in Nigeria. That's no use to us now, is it? (laughs) Well, that's fascinating that, yeah, that that to them, that's the prize. That's the thing you're aiming for. It's the home in what you think of as your home, isn't it? I want to return to, to talking about places, but let's talk about the phrase. What? phrase really cements and encapsulates this idea of home for you? What have you chosen to share with us today? See, again, this really, I was racking my brain over that. And it really stems back to the notion for me 
about home being somewhere you felt safe and secure and loved. And so the phrase for me is actually a theme. It's the theme to the news at 10 with the bongs and the old theme. Welcome to the news at 10. And I'll tell you why. It's because of Trevor McDonald. Trevor McDonald in our household was held in such high regard as a beacon of what is possible. So when he was on TV, literally my mum would shout out to the whole house, Trevor McDonald is on TV. Come watch Trevor. The, the fact that he wasn't Nigerian didn't matter then. The fact that he didn't have a Nigerian family name didn't matter in that moment. He was one yeah. of us. But he was the face of respectability. I think my mum had a secret <laughs> crush on him. That, that must have been what it was. But I think it's I think it's a fantastic choice. And I think it's a really, really again, like really resonant one for me. And I think it, it feels really telling for you because I think if we go from you working as a live comedian to transitioning to TV, like you embodied that in so many ways. I'm interested in the degree to which you felt at the first times that you were transitioning from live work to being on TV and being on these panel shows and being funny and being this recognisable figure, that you felt any pressure to be representative in, in any sort of way? Or did you just literally feel the pressure to be funny? What was that transition like for you? I'll, I'll be absolutely honest. When I started doing stand-up, it was just a bit of a hobby sort of thing to do. And I loved it. I loved the fact that I was hosting a lot of these shows. The idea, the thought of being on TV did not even cross my mind. That was not attainable. You know, there, there really literally was only Lenny Henry. <laughs> yes. There literally was. Yeah. And the thing was, I was doing comedy on the live circuit and uh, it was getting bigger and bigger, just like word of mouth. Remember back in those days, it wasn't YouTube or the internet or whatever. So it's word of mouth. Going up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I, me I remember the year, it must have been probably 2007 or thereabouts. I was doing the biggest venue in Edinburgh for a month. And that's like, I mean, like 800 people for a month, you know, with my face on the side of buses and taxis. And by that point, they couldn't ignore you. And then when I did my first ever Live at the Apollo, I'd been going for 10 years by then. And um, I, th I really thought about what I was going to do. And so I thought, I'm going to do what I've been doing on the comedy circuit, which I want to play with people's perceptions. So my first thing was I used to come out with a broad Nigerian accent. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And then just, yeah. but the jokes, as far as I'm concerned, was what I said, not the accent. Don't laugh at the accent. The jokes were the things I said. For example, I pointed at a man in the front row. Look at you openly, openly wearing glasses. <laughs> eh? You're a sinner. Have you found Jesus? The Lord gave you vision at a limited rate. You defy him by wanting to see more. So, do you know what I mean? Those are yeah, the jokes. Yeah. And then the audience would lap it up, and then I'd stop it, and then they'd go, oh. So I'd fooled them. I'd fooled them. And then... I think when that came out, I was I also did maybe the Royal Variety and then maybe a Have I Got News For You or something. It all came out in like within a, a month of, and people were like, who is this guy? And the weirdest thing about that was people started trying to compare me to Lenny Henry. I was, I was like, 
Is that the barometer now? Is, is that we're now going to be pitted against each other? And maybe it was naive of me, but I didn't appreciate the weight of what that would represent because when I did that show, the first time I did the Apollo, walking down the street weeks and days afterwards, I'd be stopped in the street by young, predominantly black youth saying thank you for representing. Hey there, it's Imriel with a quick break in the action. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Jimmy Farrell-Rower's Where's Home Really? featuring the hilarious Stephen K. Amos. As a reminder, our podcast wannabe is all about taking you from where you are now to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less, focusing on the creative and entertainment careers of women in the industry. Now, I know this episode may not be directly related to our focus, but I believe that hearing from successful people who've been there and done that can be incredibly motivating and inspiring. So whether you're a longtime fan of Stephen K. Amos or you're just looking for some fresh inspiration on your creative journey, keep listening to Where's Home Really and stay tuned for more episodes of Wannabe. Let's continue with the episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My guest today is Stephen K. Amos. Hello. Hello. We've not really spoken about food, but I am intrigued to know what your dish is going to be that really speaks to that notion of home for you. A full English breakfast. We would have that every Sunday. So that was like a treat. And we'd all eat it together. We'd be in the kitchen helping mum cook all the, the, the sausages, the bacon, the eggs. And we'd get a choice. The one time we'd have a choice. Do you want your scrambled or fried or, wow. <laughs> and we'd have it together yeah. with toast. It was like baked beans. Do you want some pepper on your beans? Yeah, give it a kick. It was brilliant. That is why today I still love a full, if I'm ever doing a job outside London or abroad and I'm staying in a hotel and breakfast is included, I will always go down for breakfast and I will always have a full English 
that's interesting to me that you, because we definitely had, you know, a lot of sort of bacon and eggs and things like that. And my mum would cook spaghetti bolognese and things like that. But the thing that we always returned to was rice, stews, a lot of Nigerian dishes. We'd have stewed eggs, like kind of folded together with like spicy tomato sauce and with yam. We'd have that on a Sunday, like kind of after church. That's interesting to me that, yeah, that your parents would pander in that way. Or did they love British food as much? as you absolutely not that is why we didn't have a spaghetti bolognese or shepherd's pie or steak we didn't have any of that every evening it would either be rice with some sort of proper nigerian hot stew and chicken or beef right on these special occasions a goosey soup which is full of bitter leaves. For those who don't know, it's made from the seeds of melon. There's a particular way you make it. And then my mum used to also, oh, she used to also, chicken feet was a thing. Liver, which you can't bear. So now I will go out of my way. I've got a very good friend of mine who has a catering business. And every other week I get a, a delivery of Nigerian food which is a goosey soup, which is jollof rice, a pepper soup, and I have it all delivered, frozen, and I just make it up myself every now and again. I can't make it myself, but it was a joy helping my mum because we used to go to the market, buy all the ingredients, and the house would smell. Beautiful. If we get onto your place, is it is it in Nigeria? Is it Lagos, or is it one of those those amazing lost homes that you that you were, that you were ripped from just as you were just as you were settling into your gigantic bedroom? <laughs> Do you know it is neither, but there is a connection. One of my favourite houses that I used to live in with my family, we had a next door neighbour, and I was just enamored by this woman. She was black, beautiful, and I just wondered what she did. And we got chatting, found out that she was also of Nigerian heritage, her name, Femi Taylor. And I thought, wow. And then I spent a lot of time, because she lived, the house next door was divided into two flats and she lived on the top floor. And so I used to go there. And then I found out she was a performer, an actress. And she inspired me because back then I used to write lots of scripts and I had like, and I used to take them to her so she could read them and give me her advice. And then she was in the first London production of Cats, the original production. And I went and I saw her and I was just in <laughs> awe of this woman. She drove a, a yellow Citroen wow. 2 CV. <laughs> she lived on her own. She was independent. She was Nigerian. She was working in the West End. It gave me hope. And then we lost touch for about 15 or so years and then got in touch with each other last year on social media. And she came to see me in My Fair Lady. I got a ticket and it was just like full circle. And at the end, we met up and she said, I always knew you could do it. And I was just like, it was such a moment because when I first started doing comedy, I didn't tell my right, parents. Right, Good yeah, heavens yeah, no. Yeah. I used to get, they thought I was a minicab driver because <laughs> uh, I was out all, all hours of the day. Uh, in fact, when I started getting sort of regular paid work, my dad would still, when I used to visit them, would still have job applications oh, wow. from the council. Have you thought of this? 
<laughs> Imagining really? it getting to the point where you have to sort of like, you know, quickly turn the TV off as you appear on it kind of thing to, <laughs> to keep up the ruse that you're just like a very successful minicab driver. When I did my own show at the Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo, my parents were flying in from Nigeria that day and I got them seats got them picked up at the airport, sat in the stalls, and I put on like a big after-show party thing, Nigerian catering, and, and I was so overwhelmed. I didn't change my routine. I did all the stuff I do, talking about them. And at the end, I went, can I just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, my parents have arrived just in time, and this is the first time they've ever wow, seen you live. Wow. The crowd went mental. <laughs> my mum stood up and took a bow. Of course she did. <laughs> it was all me. Like, They're not it was for all you. Down to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about British Nigerian culture and that notion of second generation, third generation immigrants and what they kind of take from British culture in a lot of ways. But I wonder what are some of the impacts that you feel that that your culture has had on British culture on kind of, you know, where you've grown up, like where you live, like whether it be food or music, like what are some of the things you see and how do you feel that that is kind of now part of the broader British story? Oh my goodness, there's so much. You go to the supermarket now, there's, you can buy, you can buy Gary, you can buy uh, a goosey seeds in, in Tesco. You go to the my local uh, market, which isn't far from me, Tooting Broadway Market. You go in there and the array of smells reminds you of being in a market in Lagos. I took my cousin to uh, Thornton Heath in southwest London and the man that was selling the, the, the yams, the peanuts in a bottle that you get in Nigeria that I used to bring home. My mum used to buy yams and bring from Nigeria and bring them to England. But you don't have to do that anymore. And the man who was shop it was, was talking to me in Yoruba. And I'm like, wow. And look at the music, Wizkid, this young lad from, from Lagos who sells out the O2, you know, taking the baton on from your fellow cooties and influencing musicians around the world. People want to work with you, talk with you. It's no, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, Nigeria is still one of the biggest oil producing countries in the world. So very important. When I went to Lagos last time, I went to a place just off Victoria Island called Lekki, which is just like going around Hyde Park. It's so glamorous. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And and the money from the from wealth of Nigerians that have come here and kept this economy going. Well <laughs> Stephen K. Amos, thank you so much. It's been fantastic to talk to you, to kind of find those points of connection, but also to return back to it, those points where I think it's really important that we're allowed to deviate and we're allowed to kind of claim our culture and our heritage in our own way and for ourselves that it isn't just the the possession of our parents generation or or people that that still live in our kind of ancestral countries wherever that may be that that it can become something that we're proud of well thank you so much for having me jimmy i really do appreciate and i really like the fact that we went in depth you asked about me embracing my culture do you know whenever when i go to nigeria when i get on that plane at heathrow I change into my traditional clothes. And nine times out of 10, I'm the only person on the plane wearing my traditional clothes. 
And, and I love it. And that also means when I get to the other side, I'm not hassled at the airport. <laughs> yeah, a, a beautiful sort of physical manifestation of returning to your spiritual home and also just good sort of travel practice for anyone that's been to Lagos Airport. Yeah, <laughs> handy tip there. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely staggered. That was fantastic. It was so good to speak to Stephen. I was kind of quite surprised in a lovely way because I think he's a figure that a lot of us recognise and we know how funny, how quick he is. But it was really amazing to get some insight into the person behind that, into, you know, some of the difficult challenges he's gone through, his experience, a different era of black immigrant life in London, in the UK. He sort of told it all with such wit and vibrancy and honesty. And yeah, I feel like who I thought he was has shifted in a really lovely way. Please join me next time where we'll have another amazing guest with their own unique stories and special interpretation of what home really means to them. And why not follow Where's Home Really on your favourite podcast platform? And we'd love to hear your thoughts. So pop us a comment or leave a review. From Podimo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really? Hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. Until next time. And that's a wrap on this special episode of Wannabe. I hope you enjoyed hearing from the hilarious Stephen K. Amos on Jimmy Famarera's Where's Home Really podcast. If you're looking for more inspiring conversations with famous folks like Big Zoo, Andy Oliver, Charlene White, Asma Khan, and Melissa Hemsley, to name a few, then be sure to check out Where's Home Really, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, don't forget to follow, rate, and review Wannabe to help us reach even more incredible women looking to achieve the creative and entertainment career goals. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you with a new season very soon. Bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.